0: you would grab a bible and open up with me to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1. Give you a minute to turn over there or open up your phone or the paper bible that you have or your tablet, however you're accessing uh, the bible this morning, Mark chapter 1, but I do recommend that you have a bible open because we will be using it and we'll be turning to a lot of different passages in this part of our worship this morning. It's good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. We always want you to know that you're welcome and if there is some Need you have something we can do to serve you? We'd love for you to let us know about that, and we'd love to just get to know you better. And uh, so, please stick around for a minute and let us do that this morning. I do want to say sometimes we say this, and I wanted to go ahead and say it before I got started this morning. If you are interested in being a part of our family at Fairview, a member of this church, sometimes we use terms like that, we don't really explain very well what we mean, what it means to be a member of this church is that you're saying that you want to be a part of us, that you want to submit to the elders and follow them, that you want to be a part of the worship service if you're interested in that, that you want to know about the things that go on in this church so that you get on the email list that we send out about the prayers and the things that uh, people need prayer for and the updates of things like that. Uh, All of that is what we mean by being a member. It's just sort of a declaration that I want to be here and I want to be a part of you. And the way that process works, if you're interested in that, is that usually you'll just sit down with the elders and they'll get to know you a little bit, just a few minutes of uh, conversation. And uh, then we'll announce sometimes, sometimes Sunday or Wednesday, sometimes awkwardly, uh, we'll announce, you know, raise your hand or you're over there. This person now wants to be a member here. So it's not anything that's very painful. uh, But I wanted to let you know about that. So if you're interested in that, just mention it to one of us. And uh, so we'll direct you to the right people so that you can uh, talk to the elders about being a member of this congregation. The other thing I wanted to mention before I get started is that the high school and junior high devotional will be at our house this afternoon at 5 o'clock. If you have forgotten, you no longer have any excuse, you have been warned. And uh, 5 o'clock tonight, we'll see you over at our place. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, Mark 1 and 14, the text says, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the, king, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. My contention to you this morning is that we have lost the import of that message. The very first words Jesus preaches as he begins his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. My plan for us is to think biblically this year about the kingdom, not only to restore biblical terminology, but I want us to restore the confidence and boldness that comes from knowing that God is true to his word and that there is assurance in the idea of the kingdom. So we're going to be studying, as has been mentioned already this morning, the unstoppable kingdom this year. That's what our readings have been. By the way, if you are not receiving the daily devotional readings, please let me know. We can get you on that email list. That's an email list that we keep so that we can each day, each weekday, read through a part of the Bible. This year we're reading through mainly the book of Acts. We're going to have some other epistles thrown in at the appropriate times. But the thread that we're tracing as we go through there is to talk about God acting by bringing his kingdom into existence or maybe better, establishing his kingdom through Jesus. So as we study through that, I firmly believe that we need what we're going to talk about this year, especially in terms of confidence. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit at the end of the lesson this morning, the confidence that the book of Acts gives us. But in order to get to where Acts is going to take us, we need to do some context and establish some of the roots of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, I want us to think about what that image would mean to his listeners. It has an extensive Old Testament history and background that I want to dive into a little bit for our time this morning. So the main idea, as you look at the Old Testament, is that God promised to establish His kingdom. God had promised that there would be a kingdom to come, and when Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is at hand, He is saying everything God promised is now coming to pass. So there are two senses in which the Old Testament literature uses the idea of kingdom. One is just the idea generally that God is always sovereign and ruler over his universe. So, this is First Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So you see, this is in the context of him just saying, God, you're great, you're in charge of everything, you're in charge of the kingdom. That is one way the term is used. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So we're not talking here about Israel, we're talking about the whole universe. God is over everything. He is king over all. Your kingdom, Psalm 145, 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So that sense is used in the Old Testament, but that is not the sense in which we are talking about the kingdom or Jesus is talking about the kingdom. The other sense in which it is used is more important for our purposes this morning. That is the idea that God was going to act to redeem his people through a savior, through a king, through a leader, sometimes called the Messiah, He is going to bring his king and establish his king. And through him, he will rule in a new way. So when the Old Testament describes the Messiah who was to come, very often those descriptions are royal descriptions. They are descriptions of a ruler, of a king. And we need to see that, or else we're going to miss what Jesus is saying when he comes. And all of the whispers of Jesus being a king that surround him throughout his life. So God is going to act in a certain point in time to bring his man... And put him on his throne. That is the idea of the Old Testament teaching about the kingdom. So I want us to think about and look at some of these prophecies for a few minutes this morning. First of all, he has promised to establish what he calls a conquering kingdom. Let's look in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, Daniel is interpreting the dream of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And that dream, there's a lot of context, a lot of history behind all of that. But that dream essentially described four kingdoms. And in Daniel 2.44, as Daniel describes that last kingdom, he says, Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, of that fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. By the way, that last phrase we should recognize from the song we sang, it shall stand, where we said, it shall stand, it shall stand, over and over again, okay? It shall stand forever, that comes from Daniel 2.44. The kingdom of God is going to stand forever. It is a kingdom, he says specifically, that will never be destroyed. And I want you to notice that it has a historical basis, he is not just saying broadly, you know, God's always ruling and that someday God's going to rule even more. He is saying there's going to come a time, in the time of these fourth kingdom, God will establish his kingdom and it will never be destroyed. And look again at verse 44, it says, It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. So, he is saying more than God will keep reigning, he's saying God's going to do a new thing and conquer. It will be a kingdom that conquers the other kingdom. In fact, in the dream, it is pictured as a stone that comes and knocks over the statue. That is the idea. It is conquering. Look a few pages over in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, we do not have time this morning to dig into Daniel 7, but I do want to notice in verse 27, Daniel 7 and verse 27, which is also talking about the fourth kingdom, it says... And the kingdom, Daniel 7, 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. All dominions, everybody's going to serve and obey the kingdom of God, the people of God. So I want you to notice a couple of things. First, notice that word in verse 27, everlasting. Everlasting. It lasts forever. It is an everlasting kingdom. And the term from back in chapter 2, it is a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. Keep those in mind. We'll come back to those in a minute. But here, I want you to see that these are conquering the words, descriptions of a kingdom that beats the other kingdoms and everyone else submits to this kingdom. That is what God promises will happen in his Messiah. Let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm two and verse one, it says, Psalm two verse one, why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Just a little time out there. The word anointed in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. That is what Messiah means. So here he says, Ask of me and I will make the, he- the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a psalm about how God is going to reign through his anointed, through his Messiah. And New Testament authors point out that he calls the king, the Messiah, his son. He does that a couple of times in verse 7 and in verse 12. But I want you to notice that God uses the Messiah to conquer. You see that in a couple of places here. In verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. They're going to try to rebel against God. And verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs at them and their opposition. Instead, verse 8... Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is a conquering kingdom that God will establish through his Messiah. Let's go over to Psalm 110 now. Psalm 110. We're doing two things at once here. We're establishing the idea of a conquering kingdom... ...but we're also looking through and becoming more familiar... ...with some of these promises about God establishing His kingdom. Psalm 110 and verse 1. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand... ...until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies... Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. we we'll have to save that priest forever and Melchizedek for later on in our Hebrews class on Wednesday nights. But verse 1 is what I really want to stress. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You're going to... Put your feet up on all of the people you have conquered. That is what God promises to the king. God promises to the Messiah. Now, Christians certainly saw this in the New Testament time as a messianic passage, that God was promising that the Messiah was going to conquer everyone. But it wasn't just Christians who did that. Jews also saw in Psalm 110. This is a messianic passage. In fact, Jesus asks a question about it. How can David call him Lord if he's David's son? So the expectation of a conquering kingdom, I want you to think about what that would mean for the Jews who lived between the times when these passages were written and the time when Jesus came. They believe and they hear in those promises a time when God is going to act and He is going to conquer all the nations of the world and establish Israel as kingdom again. There are repeated references throughout the Messianic prophecies, to David, the line of David, the son of David, the root of Jesse. And when a Jew is going to hear those passages, he's going to think back to the time when David and Solomon were kings over these great swaths of land that now they have lost. And they're going to hear about conquest, and they're going to think, finally, God is going to act, and that's going to include some kind of military victory. It will be a conquering kingdom. So I want you to see that while God has said there would be conquering, there is also an impression that that gives and an expectation that that gives to the people who are going to be looking for the kingdom. Second thing I want us to see is God has promised to establish an everlasting kingdom. I mentioned to remember those verses from Daniel, the idea that it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed, it will stand forever, it is everlasting kingdom. Because that is exactly how we would describe The message of the Old Testament about the kingdom. It will last forever. And that's a significant thing. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. So the Old Testament not only points forward to God acting in a new way, but God acting in a new permanent way. God changing history forever and that would make it different from the kingdom of Saul or the kingdom of David where there is no longer the same continuity there was when they were kings or when their families were the lines were king instead this is a different kind of kingdom a kingdom that never ends ezekiel 34 and verse i'm sorry ezekiel 37 verse 24 ezekiel 37 24 my servant david shall be king over them And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people." Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, Ezekiel prophesied in Babylon. Ezekiel was in Babylon during the time of the captivity. And then shortly after he begins prophesying, the temple is destroyed. So, there is no sense at the time when Ezekiel is writing in which the kingdom continues. Instead, he says... David will be king, verse 24. Now, remember, David has been centuries dead when this is written. So he is talking about a new David, a Messiah, a new kind of Savior. And verse 25, he says, They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Do you notice the forevers? Over and over again, he says in, 30, in 26, there'll be an everlasting covenant. They'll set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Verse 28, my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. An everlasting kingdom is the idea that God is finally going to right all the wrongs and right all the wrongs for good. That is the promise of the everlasting kingdom. God's finally going to act to do what we wish he would have done a long ago. And God says, now I will when I act in my servant David. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I want you to notice first all the king images. Did you see that in verse 6? The government will be on his shoulder He will be called Prince of Peace, verse 7, the increase of his government, verse 7, the throne of David and his kingdom, over and over again. We're talking about a kingdom and a coming king. But he says there will be no end, and his kingdom will continue forever, and the peace he brings will continue forever. Now, let me say a word about this before we move on. It might be hard for us to appreciate this uh, because we're blessed to live in a free nation. Israel, though, was so regularly a pawn in international affairs. Nations would just march through there on their way to conquer some other nation, going down to Egypt, going over to Assyria, and and just back and forth they were kicked. Over and over again they struggled to have any kind of stability. And even after Isaiah, who in his time the Assyrians came, and even after Ezekiel, who lives those years in Babylonian captivity. It's not as if the children of Israel are suddenly liberated when they come back. Instead, they endure centuries more of these kinds of hardships. And to say not only is there going to be a kingdom, but that kingdom will last forever, is to say there will finally be stability. We're not just going to have our moment in the sun where we come out on top for a few years, and then we go back to the bottom. Instead, it's going to be we will finally have everything we've always dreamed of and things will be set. It's over. There is no more of what we're suffering now. And I want you to know that by the time Jesus comes, that spirit, that downtrodden spirit yearning for something stable, that hasn't changed. Instead, only the names have changed. Instead of Assyria and Babylon, now the names are Greece and Rome. But the people in Jesus' era still want, can we finally have something that's going to last? And they look for the Messiah because they want a permanent kingdom. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here, these are the promises he's leaning into. Finally, God is going to act, he's going to conquer, and he's going to put something together that's going to last. And the third thing we see about the kingdom is that it is a just And peaceful kingdom. Because a lot of the kingdom prophecies stress what life is like under the king. Like here in Isaiah chapter 9. Look again at verse 6. He says, Isaiah 9 and verse 6. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The prince of peace, there will be no end of peace, there will be justice, there will be righteousness. Peace and justice. Peace is the idea that we're no longer at war, that we don't have to worry about who is going to become the next great power, we don't have to worry about every day, what is the watchman going to see coming up over the horizon, what army is coming next. Justice is the idea that we're going to treat each other the right way. Nobody's going to take advantage of each other. Nobody's going to do wrong to each other. There will be righteousness in the kingdom, and the king ensures it. The king ensures that security and peace, and the king ensures that righteousness. So it will be a blessing for everyone when the kingdom of God comes. Turn a page or two to Isaiah chapter 11. While we're in this area, Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says... There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember, Jesse is David's father, so that's a reference to him being of the line of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So the Messiah will be what other kings are not. He will be wise, he will be powerful, he will be godly, he will have righteous judgment. He will be Solomon like Solomon should have been. He will be David like David should have been. He will be the king we've all wanted. And you can see how that will bless the people under his rule. Like in verse 6, where he talks about how the wolf will dwell with the lamb, how even enemies are going to be able to get along when this king is king. When the Messiah comes, there will finally be peace. I want you to look at one more passage with me on this in Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. One of the really challenging things about going through these Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom... ...is I have to pare it down. I can't preach on all of them or we'll be here all day. The good news, though, is I have all year to preach on them. So, Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord... ...when I will raise up for David a righteous branch... ...and he shall reign as king and deal wisely... ...and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land... In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah takes Isaiah's description from back in Isaiah 11, the idea of a branch from the root of the stump of Jesse. And he says that branch is going to come from David and he will reign and he will be wise. and He will execute justice and righteousness. And finally, Israel will dwell securely. There will be peace again. Now, it's important to say there's no contradiction here in the idea of a just and peaceful kingdom with the idea of a conquering kingdom because when the kingdom prophecies describe this, what they are saying is God's going to conquer through his king and then there will be peace. There's peace because all the other enemies have been subdued. There's peace because the enemies are the footstool for the feet of the Messiah. There's peace because everyone submits to the Messiah and through the Messiah to God. That's the promise of the kingdom of God. So you can see how that presents a new world order. He is saying that's going to change everything. And that is what leaves us yearning for the reign of the Messiah. So when Jesus comes preaching, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. That's why it's good news. The good news of the gospel is God's finally going to do what he said he was going to do. God's finally going to put the world right the way he said he would. When Jesus comes saying that, he is saying the Messiah is here. It's not surprising that when Jesus comes saying that, that there were people who were actively anticipating the kingdom. They wanted him to come. They wanted what God had promised. They studied their Bibles. They knew what God had promised, and they knew God was going to bring his Messiah into the world. You see some of those people, like Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. That's a description of the anticipation. He's looking for it, and that's one of the reasons he's interested in Jesus. Jesus is preaching about what Joseph is looking for. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That idea of the consolation of Israel, that time when Israel's finally going to receive everything it had been promised. There's also Anna, it says, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the same idea. The kingdom's going to come. Finally, God's going to console his people. He's going to redeem them. Throughout Jesus' ministry... These rumors follow him that he is king. From the first words out of his mouth, the kingdom is at hand. Even from the time when he's born. Even from the time before he's born. When the angel says to his mother, he's going to be the king. And then when he is born and the wise men come saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? From the first disciples he makes, one of whom is Nathanael, who's so impressed by Jesus saying that he saw him under the fig tree, he says, behold, you are the king of Israel. When people make those statements with this kind of context behind them, they're not flippant remarks. They're saying you are finally what God has long promised. Repeatedly. People call Jesus son of David. When they bring him to Pilate, the charge is he is king of the Jews. He makes himself a king. In fact, I want you to look with me in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. The important thing that we really need to focus on ...is that Jesus takes all of these ideas... ...a conquering kingdom, an everlasting kingdom... ...and a just and peaceful kingdom... ...and he redefines them. Jesus never attempts or claims to be the kind of king... ...that the Jews anticipated from these prophecies. That is the idea of a belligerent king... ...who is going to conquer everyone and force everyone into submission that he is not going to be the kind of king who's everlasting because he kills all his rivals. He is not going to be the kind of king who brings justice and peace at the edge of the sword. He specifically says that. I want you to look with me in John 18 and verse 33. John 18 and verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Remember, that's what he had been told. Jesus answered, did you say this of your own accord or did others say say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? By the way, he doesn't stay for the answer. Jesus says specifically, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would fight. That means that Jesus takes this idea, this rich idea of a conquering, everlasting, just, peaceful kingdom, and he says my kingdom is all of those things, but... My kingdom is spiritual, not physical. My kingdom is divine, not human. So Jesus is going to conquer, but he's not going to conquer by physical fighting. He says that specifically. That's not the kind of kingdom that I have. And Jesus will reign forever, but he's not going to reign forever through a physical line or a family of kings. Jesus is going to bring peace and justice, but not in the ways we expect. Instead, Jesus' primary enemy is not all the other nations. Jesus' primary enemy is Satan. And so John will say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He has conquered because he has defeated the true enemy. You see how he redefines that? From the Jewish expectation of conquering all the nations, Jesus conquers the one who is behind all the nations rebelling against God. He redefines it. Jesus reigns forever. And as he does, he fights off the onslaughts of Satan and his followers. And Jesus gives peace and justice, but in an interesting way. It's often a different kind of peace, like an internal peace. Or peace in a different setting as peace within a local congregation or peace between races like Jew and Gentile. And sometimes it's peace with God instead of peace with people. But one way or another, when you see what Jesus does, you cannot deny that he is just and he brings peace to his followers. So he fulfills the expectation. He fulfills the prophecy, but not the expectation. So Jesus winds up fulfilling prophecies, but not expectations. And that is vitally important. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, after this encounter that we've just read in John 18, Jesus, of course, is executed. He is raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And then, and New Testament writers are quite emphatic about this point, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God to reign. The historical moment when that happens, we're going to read about this week in our readings, is in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, to prove that Jesus is now enthroned. He poured out, Peter says, that which you now see and hear. Jesus did it. The kingdom has come. And now people can be a part of the kingdom. Now you might ask the question, well, why why are we going into all of this? I do have a reason. I do have a point. It seems to me, that when we disconnect the New Testament from the Old Testament, and we only focus on Jesus and the things that happen after Jesus, and we lose the rich history of an idea like the kingdom, that we lose something. We lose the sense that God has been planning and foretelling something for so long, and then finally it comes to pass. We lose the sense that God is faithful to His word, ...that he brings it to pass, but also we lose the sense that sometimes God fulfills his word... ...in ways we wouldn't have expected, like Jesus. Where we have expectations that look a certain way from the Old Testament... ...and then the fulfillment which looks totally different. And yet is still true. But perhaps most of all, we lose the sense of where we are in the story. Where do we fit? So, I just want to say two things... In a now what sort of way. So if the kingdom is here, what does that mean for you and me? I want to leave you with two thoughts. The first is that when the kingdom is described in the New Testament, it is tied together with the idea of repentance. The first word Jesus says as he begins his ministry, at least in Matthew's account, is repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, John the Baptist says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. If the kingdom is here, if God is finally acting in history, if God has kept his promises, if God has vanquished his enemies, if God is establishing a permanent kingdom, if God is bringing peace and justice, I want to be on the right side of it. I do not want to be one of God's enemies. Do you? If you've read through some of the stories of the battles of the Old Testament. When God's people are just trusting and following Him, battles like Gideon with his 300 men, when you see the power of God and what God does to those who make themselves enemies of Him and His people, do you want to be on the wrong side of God? If God is finally acting, I need to be. In submission to God. Because God has acted, though, we need to know that Satan is going to try to attack God's work. He's going to try to attack the kingdom. He will attack me individually, he will attack us collectively, he will attack God's people universally. He will attack. So it is a time to declare allegiances. It is a time to decide who we want to follow. Are we going to follow ourselves and do what we like? Are we going to be servants of our own pleasures? Is that what we're going to do? Just say, I know how to live my life. I know what I think is best. I'm just going to do what I like. Are we going to choose to follow Jesus, the King, the Messiah? And the word repent is the idea that I realize there's going to need to be a change in my mentality that leads to a change in my behavior. That I am willing, because I truly believe in God and I truly believe in His Messiah, that I'm willing now to change. I won't be the person I was before. That's what repentance is. In fact, it seems to me that what many were anticipating to be a revolution that would benefit us, a kingdom where we would finally be on top, instead becomes a revolution within us where we have to change and become different people. And there is a beauty in that, and there is also a challenge. So if there is something between you and God, just know that all of these blessings rest on the other side of repentance. Quit fighting, give in to the king, become his subject, repent of your sins. And the other thing I want to say is be confident. When we're on the side of the kingdom of God, we need the confidence that is a natural part of God's power. Do you remember what we've read The rulers of earth gather together to oppose God and his Messiah. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. Are people going to be able to stop God? Can they stand in God's way? Keep him from doing what he wants to do? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Daniel says... God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. When I connect to the Old Testament prophecies, I have to tell you, brethren, it makes me confident that you're not going to stop God. God's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. So I don't know how much this gets around in everybody's circles, but it does in preacher circles, where people will talk about the modern American church, and they'll do all these surveys and, And uh, they'll say, well, people aren't going to church as much as they used to. And uh, there are all these surveys where people, instead of putting some religious affiliation, they'll put none, N-O-N-E, not none like uh, monk or none, but N-O-N-E. And so there'll be all these articles and the hand-wringing about the rise of the nuns and all these millennials, nobody's paying attention to God anymore. Christianity is becoming increasingly unpopular. It's not popular in our society, that kind of thing. I have to tell you, what do we think? Do we think that Christ's church is going to end? It's going to die? Do we really think that the gates of Hades will prevail against God? Honestly? Honestly? You remember when Elijah says, I alone am left, and they seek my life? Do we really think that we're alone, left, you know? We're the remnant? I think we know better than that. Where is our confidence in God? That God can be trusted to fulfill his promises. Now, I understand. Sometimes we get discouraged. I do too. And I understand that sometimes we need to do some work. Because the gospel's not going to spread just by itself. God has enlisted our help in that. And it may be that the kingdom is going to thrive in other countries and not in America. That can happen. There's no promise that God's going to have a great foothold in America. But we have to be confident that God will fulfill his word. And as we study through the book of Acts this year, that is my focus. And I want that to be your focus That as we see God acting by bringing his Messiah and we see people submitting to the Messiah, Satan attacks. He attacks again and again and again and all of Satan's attacks fail. They always fail because they're fighting against God. God always wins. God's will is always done. And we need the confidence to say that still goes on. God will not be stopped. God's kingdom will not be stopped. So be confident. I don't mean be lazy. I don't mean be arrogant. I mean be confident in God. God's kingdom emerges victorious. The kingdom is here. Our duty is to be a part of it. And our duty is to know that God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who stands a chance against God? Might be someone here this morning who is ready to become a disciple of Jesus... And to have that reign in your heart and your life that God wants to establish because you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of those promises. And you believe that through him, you can have eternal life that he offers. If you're ready to put your faith in him, to turn away from your sins, what we talked about repentance this morning, and to be baptized into Christ, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.